The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, contemporary art among the pyramids in Egypt, the new museum triennial, and Manet's portrait of the critic and artist Zachary Estruk. Amy Dawson is in Giza for Forever Is Now, where works by Egyptian and international artists are shown along a trail around the Giza Plateau and talks to its curator, Nadine Abdel Ghaffar, as well as artists Gisela Colon and Lita Albuquerque. The new museum in New York's latest triennial exhibition, this time called Soft Water, Hard Stone, has just opened, and I talked to Margot Norton and Jamila James, the two curators behind the show, whose plans were rudely interrupted by the pandemic. And in this episode's Work of the Week, I talked to Dorothea Hansen from the Kunsthalle Bremen in Germany about Edouard Manet's portrait of Zachary Astruc, a poet, critic and artist who was a central figure in Manet's milieu but has been rather forgotten. Before all that, a reminder that you can sign up to the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and the newsletter link is at the top left of the page. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and if you like what we do, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. Now, for the next two weeks, works by ten contemporary artists will be shown in a sculptural trail among the pyramids in Giza, Egypt, in Forever Is Now. It's organised, along with a host of contemporary shows in downtown Cairo, by Art d'Egypte, a company that aims to promote Egyptian art with annual exhibitions at historic sites. Our deputy digital editor, Amy Dawson, is in Giza, and she sent this report. As Ben says, I'm in Egypt this week, where a contemporary sculpture exhibition at the Pyramids has just opened. There are 10 artists in the show, including Lorenzo Quinn, JR, and Gisela Colon, who I'll be chatting to a little later. All of the artists have created site-specific pieces that respond directly to the 4,500-year-old site. The show has been a huge venture that has taken years to stage since the founder of Art d'Egypte, Nadine Abdel Ghaffar, first came up with the idea. I spoke to Nadine about the genesis and final realisation of her dream project. I wondered if you could first start by telling me what the inspiration was for this show. Well, it's a bit of a long story. So uh, I've been curating these exhibitions in historical sites since 2017. The whole idea behind it is to create a bond and a dialogue between heritage sites or historic places and uh, contemporary art. So I believe that contemporary artists are a lens to society today. And so we've started at the Egyptian Museum, then it grew a bit bigger to the Maniel Palace, then a bit bigger to historic Cairo and the street. And then we said, okay, what's next? The necropolis. <laughs> it was an insane uh, dream and idea. And until yesterday, I couldn't believe it. You know, we've actually, we did it. Because, I mean, one, since it's the pyramids and it is a message to humanity and a token of hope to humanity that these pyramids survived pandemics, wars, you know, and are still here. This is the standing, living ancient world wonder so when we decided to do that we said okay we're in dialogue with this civilization and its 
not only for Egypt, but for the rest of the world. So it is World Heritage and it's, it has to be an international exhibition. So it was a bit difficult, but then we, I started creating like a, a small uh, board, a small uh, curatorial board. And uh, based on that, we started, you know, contacting artists from around the world. And the reaction of each artist was like amazing because it's the first time in history. It's the first time that you have a fully curated exhibition in a historical space at the pyramids. You know, it's the first in 4,500 years. So it's quite different. And the reaction was amazing because each artist really poured their hearts into, into this project. And they're all very happy there. They've all experienced Egypt. Some of them had never been to Egypt and like they spent 10 days working on their installations and they did all the research, you know. So a lot of the people are coming to me and telling me, you know, this is a nice exhibition because it's not art that is just put there. You really feel the dialogue and the connection with the, with the space and this is very important. And um, you've had quite a lot of media attention already for the show. And also some celebrities have appeared. <laughs> I saw Pharrell wandering around um, in the crowd. What's the reaction been like, particularly like within the country? How have people reacted? And especially everyday people, how have they found having these very contemporary works in their very familiar ancient site? Well, that was the highlight of my day every day is we had 150 workers they were all in awe with the space and they were actually working with the artists and they were taking photographs and were so proud of what they were doing. It was like a, a national uh, project, you know, it was so nice to see all these people around the, the horse and carriages, people, you know, all of that. They were all extremely happy with, the, with what was going on. And now that you've done the pyramids, what next? Because how do you beat that? <laughs> Look, uh, the funniest thing is that I've been asked this question in 2017 at the Egyptian Museum. Everybody was blown away and said, what's next? And every year people ask me the same question. So it's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much and congratulations thank on the you. success. Thank you. While, as Nadine says, this is the first fully curated exhibition at the Pyramids, this is not, in fact, the first time that the great monuments have witnessed contemporary art at their feet. The Los Angeles-based artist Lita Albuquerque, who filmed a new work at the Forever Is Now exhibition, also created a huge installation called Soul Star for the 1996 Cairo Biennale, where she won the top prize. Here she tells me about her latest work and her experience of coming back and working in such a significant site 25 years on. My name is Lita Albuquerque. I'm an artist from Los Angeles, California. And I've come here to do a performance of a character I've created called Najma, which means star in Arabic. And she's a 25th century female astronaut who comes to this planet to remind us of our connection to the stars. And we just did a film shoot. We weren't able to do the performance, but we did a film shoot where she is coming in almost looking like a praying mantis in this glorious blue long dress. And 33 solar discs that represent the 33 vertebras in our spine. But if you think of them as solar discs, they're infused with light and it helps with the acceleration of consciousness. And that's what she's here to do. So this performance is 
really impactful. But something that people may not know is that this is not your first time doing a project at yes. the pyramids. Yes. So tell us about your first experiences and how that came about and what you made. Absolutely. So no, it's not my first experience. I was here in 1996 with the 6th International Cairo Biennale and I was representing the U.S. and I did a project at the pyramids uh, on the Giza Plateau the size of two football fields and it was a star map. Uh, I essentially placed the pyramids in a field of stars by placing hundreds of blue powder pigment circled different diameters to represent the different brightnesses of the stars above. And so it was this extraordinary piece. We got the biennial prize. And so that was the beginning of the 25th century female astronauts' works to remind us that the, the pyramids were placed as monuments in alignment to the stars and that we're in fact in a star field ourselves. If you think of, of the earth itself with nothing on it, I had a vision here in 1988 of seeing the planet from space with nothing on it but gold-tipped pyramids that were aligned to the stars all around. So when you think of it, that's who we are. We are in space. I don't know why we don't really get it, but we're in space, surrounded by starlight. And so the idea of her vision and her mission is to infuse us with that light so that we can connect and really understand who we are. And you've done a number of big, yes. exciting yes. installations, particularly in the region, in the Middle East. Yes. Can you explain why that's kind of come about and how your work focuses that? Yes. Well, I've been very lucky to be able to work in, in, I have a project called the Great Deserts of the World, where I'm placing these kinds of star maps in all the deserts. And I was asked by Neville Wakefield, who works with Desert X, and there was a Desert X in 2020 in Alula. And I was able to do one of my projects, which is of Najma, a sculpture of her sitting on top of a, a boulder overlooking two miles of a star field that she placed, again, with blue powdered circles, uh, looking east towards the rising sun. And your background, you obviously live in Los yes. Angeles now, but can you tell us a little bit about your biography? Absolutely. My work in, in the Middle East has a lot to do with the fact that my mother's Tunisian and I was raised in Tunisia. My father's from Turkey, lived in Paris all his life. So I was raised in this extraordinary place in Carthage, which is the seat of the Roman Empire. I was raised in a Catholic convent overlooking the Roman ruins, coming from a Jewish background in an Islamic country, being part of this entire amalgamation of ideas, of thoughts that are really all the same in the end. But I've also studied Islamic thought, Islamic architecture, Islamic philosophy, Islamic uh, mathematics. And it's been something that's inspired me from the roots. And I think it has a lot to do with the idea of the sense of unity, that we are one in the whole, that we're one and the many. And it's always been something that has moved me very, very deeply. And so the Middle East for me and the deserts is definitely a place where I love to uh, imbue with these ideas. Well, it's incredible that you've been able to return yes. decades yes. later. Yes. I'm so Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. The exhibition at the pyramids is spread over an enormous area, but the first work you see when you walk into the site's entrance is Gisela Colon's sculpture titled Eternity Now, a shimmering domed piece that sits almost bowing down to the monuments in front of it. 
I spoke to the artist after she gave a talk about the work at the American University in Cairo, and she shared the inspirations behind the sculpture and how it interacts with its incredible surroundings. First of all, can you describe the piece that you've created for the people, obviously, that haven't quite seen it yet? Yes, I created this gold elliptical dome, which is titled Eternity Now, for the Forever Is Now exhibition at the pyramids in Egypt. And its form is just reminiscent and informed by the ancient Egyptian history and knowledge in the fields of astronomy, cosmology, science, art, architecture, mythology, and even sacred geometry. So its form is supported by a lot of research that I did into these ancient practices. And starting with the color gold, because the color gold is ubiquitous in the Egyptian culture, and it is an indestructible metal, and they considered it to be a divine material. And so it has this sense of the mystical of transcendence. So of course the sculpture had to be gold. And I developed this very special pigment. It took me a while, but it, it shifts and it runs all of the gamut of golds. So it starts with like a green gold to a yellow gold to a rose gold, and it becomes this mutable transformative surface that not only color shifts, but it also reflects the light of the sun outward. And also when the sun is setting, then becomes a almost like a mirror object that then symbiotically brings in the surrounding environment. So like at a certain time of the day, you see the pyramids and the Sphinx reflected in the side of the dome. So you have this incredible gold shimmering surface that is a fluid color spectrum. And then the form itself stems from cosmology and astronomy because the ancient Egyptians actually were leaders in that field and they studied the stars and they positioned the pyramids aligned with the pole star. And then they also studied the skies to determine the flooding of the Nile because the flooding of the Nile was very key for them because it brought them sustenance. So depending on how deep the flooding was or how long it was, the, the, the silt and the sands and the soil that remained behind would give them good crops or not so good crops. So the skies were their source of inspiration for their daily life. And then also this gold dome basically embodies the form of a setting sun. So in a way, it speaks in semiotics. Semiotics is basically the study of symbols. So when I wanted to convey the sense that somebody who was not in the art world, just visiting the Giza Plateau, visiting the pyramids, could look at the sculpture and it could communicate without words. So it becomes like a symbol. So when somebody looks at this gold dome, it looks like a sun setting in the sky. And that is the use of a semiotic language that people of all walks of life can understand the meaning of the sculpture and it can convey the sense of the future, of the sky, of the energy, and the metaphysical aspects of life. Because the ancient Egyptians basically believed in the afterlife. And this belief that their bodies transcended into the future is what generated the most incredible art and architecture of its time. So I wanted the sculpture to have this sense of transcendence, that it becomes more than its composition, that it transcends the material and it conveys lifelike energy and a sense of the future. 
So some of your sculptures are more kind of totemic, these big kind of coming out of the ground, very like monumental. And in this form, you've gone for kind of a more low-lying shape. What was it that made that decision for you? Well, let me start with the totemic qualities. My monoliths are also kind of a semiotic language because the totem in and of itself is this very primal singular form that we see manifested in humanity that goes back eons. So starting with Stonehenge, for example, the pyramids themselves, amulets, talismans, things that people would hold in their hand that were just a singular object convey this sense of mystery and the mystical aspects of the world. So my totems are very, very much a primal language that communicates that. And then I imbue them with the surface quality that creates a futuristic spin on this primal form. So it's the juxtaposition of the ancient and the futuristic that I love kind of pushing the boundaries of and creating this polarity in my sculptures. So speaking about the Egypt sculpture, it had to be very different than a totemic monolithic form because the pyramids are so majestic. You cannot compete with the pyramids. Like nothing that I would place there, no matter how tall, can even come close to the majesty and the magnificence of these huge triangular forms. So I thought it has to be completely the opposite of a totem. It has to be something humble, lying lower on the ground, and just that pays a lot of kind of like respect to this legacy. And so that's why I envisioned a golden dome. I created it to be eight feet tall so that humans can still feel a sense of awe and wonder when they approach it because it's still two feet above the average height of a human. But I created it really long. So it sits like 30 feet long on the ground and it has an elliptical form at the base, which creates this sense of movement because the sculpture is destabilized. From one angle, you see it as this perfect kind of circular elliptical curve. And then as you move around it, it becomes this thinner form. So this juxtaposition of the ancient elliptical form with this surface that's kind of futuristic gives it this dynamic energy that really connects and symbiotically relates to the surroundings of the Giza pyramid and particularly being in front of the Sphinx because the Sphinx head has this beautiful curvature and I thought oh how great if I make this dome and it sits kind of visually in between the line of the pyramids and then far away you see the Sphinx head then it has a conversation The arch of the Sphinx's head will have a conversation with the arch of the dome. And again, it'll bring in its surroundings. It'll have this conversation with its environment. And you talked in your presentation here about what it's been like when you were installing it. You had 10 days to put the work in place and meeting some of the kind of locals and, and seeing them experience it. And you told a really lovely story about meeting with a group of young girls. Can you tell us about that? Well, there have been several wonderful experiences that I've had since being here for many days installing and meeting the locals and meeting people. And one of them was this group of teenage girls, young girls, probably from the ages of 12 to maybe under 20. And they all came to me in a big group. It was probably 15 of them. And they were so mesmerized and just excited to just see me and meet me. And they all wanted selfies. So I took 
each one of them, I, I had a selfie with each one of them. And it was so cute how they were kind of fighting with each other and pushing each other away to get a selfie with me. And it meant so much to them. And then I just said it, you know, kind of started talking to them and as much as they could understand, um, because some of them spoke a little better English than others. But I said, how many of you want to be an artist? Just to, to kind of trying to start a conversation and bridge that cultural gap. And then a few of them raised their hand. And then I just started just kind of naturally outflowing and talking to them and saying, you know, all of you can be artists or you can be whatever you want to be. And they got so excited. They, they, they understood what I was saying and their eyes lit up and, and I could see the sense of connection. And I thought, this is what art projects like this achieve. They achieve a sense of the human connection with the local environment, with the people, people who are not in the rarefied art world. Art can really generate change in that way in the minds of young people, in the minds of everybody around that they've never experienced this before. So it felt meaningful to me to be able to have these experiences with the locals, with the people at the Giza Plateau and in Egypt. It's just been a magnificent opportunity. And I think that doing land art projects like this really can bring about change. And there was another very cute story about a family of dogs, which I loved, that dug under the uh, sculpture. And I wondered about that and, you know, the, the show's on for another couple of weeks. Are you moderately concerned about how it will stand the test of time in the desert? <laughs> well, not really. I think um, the, the dogs were so cute because the night before I had been there and we had been packing some sand and kind of covering some of the the, the area around it to make it even and beautiful. And then in the morning, we come back to, to clean the sculpture because it was the opening day. And I see this hole, a dugout hole underneath the sculpture. And I said, oh my God, what is going on? And then this dog pokes the head out. And there was a mother with puppies that had dug a hole and made it like a dog den under the sculpture. And it was so adorable because they, they felt sheltered, they felt protected. And um, anyway, the security guard did take the dogs out just for the opening day. But I told him, I said, look, tomorrow when the dogs come back, just let them burrow down there and live there for the next two weeks. Because, you know, again, it's a sense of connecting to the existing environment. And that's what's great about land art is like everything's unpredictable. And, you know, art is in this kind of wild environment and you just have to see what happens. And the other thing that happened, which I was so surprised, is that ladybugs are attracted to these sculptures. So I experienced that in Freeze London. There were lots of ladybugs and like insects that were just attracted to the monolith in the park at Regent's Park. But here in Egypt also, I had a bunch of little ladybugs just land and I thought, oh my God, that's like really good luck. But I loved seeing them just crawling around because they're, they're attracted to the light and that shimmering surface. And it's really beautiful to see even the animal kingdom and the insect kingdom interact with the sculpture so it sounds like it's reacting well to its environment and you hinted that perhaps there'll be a, a longer term future for this sculpture in Egypt I think so something's in the works but I'm going to let Nadine Abdel Ghaffar the curator speak to it in the right time and place and finally do you have any particularly exciting projects coming up things that you're working on this must have taken up a lot of your time and a lot of your headspace <laughs> But now what's next? So coming up, when this exhibition of Egypt comes down in November, I'm in a 
museum exhibition at the Addison Gallery of American Art in Massachusetts, and the title is Light Space Surface Works from the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And this is a large group exhibition curated by Carol Eliel of LACMA, and it opens November 23, and it's really going to be a seminal exhibition on the history of light and space, so I'm excited to be included. And then that exhibition travels to the Frist Art Museum in Nashville, Tennessee, opening in June of 2022. And then also coming soon in November is an opening of a light and space exhibition at LAX Airport, which is a Los Angeles County initiative at the Tom Bradley International Airport Terminal, which has all of the greats of light and space, and I'm included in that. So it's just fantastic to be in this conversation. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was such a pleasure chatting with you, and I'm just so excited we're here in Egypt together. Forever is now is in Giza until the 7th of November. Coming up, we talk about the new museum triennial in New York and about Edouard Manet's portrait of Zachary Astruc. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. Museums around the world are coming under mounting pressure to return or explain the presence of potentially looted Cambodian relics in their collections, some of which may have been obtained by the late Douglas Latchford, the disgraced Bangkok-based art dealer and collector. As Vincent Noss reports, the media consortium working on the Pandora Papers, a cache of 11.8 million leaked offshore data files, reported that prosecutors identified at least 43 relics still held in 10 museums around the world that passed through the hands of Latchford or his associates. The Denver Art Museum intends to return to Cambodia four cultural relics originally acquired by Latchford, while the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York faces scrutiny from the Cambodian government in regard to dozens of Khmer Empire antiquities in its possession. The cultural sector in England will receive £850 million in extra funding, as announced by the UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak in his budget. As Martin Bailey reports, museums including the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, Tate Liverpool and the Imperial War Museum in Duxford will each get a share of £300 million for what the Treasury calls arms-length body estate maintenance. The three-year investment will help museums, galleries and cultural hotspots redevelop and refurbish their sites and it's supplementary to regular annual government subsidies for the UK's 15 national museums. And finally, more than 2,000 artefacts and burial grounds dating back to 700 BCE have been identified on the route of a controversial Mexican railway development. As Gabriela Angeletti writes, the high-speed Maya train line is envisioned to stretch across 1,500 kilometres and connect several archaeological zones in the Yucatan Peninsula, from Palenque to Cancun. The announcement followed years of protests and legal injunctions against the project from local communities, more than 50% of which are indigenous Mayans. Archaeologists unearthed complex stone and clay architecture and mounds, ceramics, ceremonial and burial vessels and other objects dating from 700 BCE to 850 CE between Palenque and Escarcega. You can read these stories and much more on the website or our apps for iOS and Android, which you'll find on the App Store or Google Play. We'll be back after this. Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This November, Christie's presents The Collector, an online sale bringing together the finest European and English furniture, sculpture, ceramics, silver, gold boxes and clocks from the 18th century to the 19th century. The auction showcases works of art with distinctive craftsmanship and provenance, including private collections. 
open for bidding from the 2nd to the 16th of November, this edition of The Collector invites Molly Marn, a British textile designer and printmaker, to curate vignettes using highlights from the sale, bringing them to life by combining art with her signature fabrics and wallpapers. Wander through a series of joyful spaces in the pre-sale exhibition from the 6th to 10th of November at Christie's King Street. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, the new museum in New York's fifth triennial exhibition of contemporary art has just opened. It's called Softwater Hard Stone, a title inspired by an old Brazilian proverb, and it features 40 artists and collectives from across the world. Though planning had begun before the pandemic, it's inevitably been affected by the events of the last year and a half and was postponed from its original opening date in early 2021 to the fall. I spoke to the organisers, Margot Norton, a curator at the New Museum, and Jamila James, senior curator at the Institute of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, about the show. Margot and Jamila, before we talk about the actual show and its themes and the artists involved, I'd like to talk a bit about the gestation of the show, because obviously you were planning this show before COVID hit. But as both of you detail in your essays in the catalogue, COVID made a big difference inevitably in the planning of the show. Right, Margot, do you want to begin? Yeah, we were appointed the curators for the 2021 triennial back in July of 2018. So it's been a little over three years that we've been working on the show. Um, and when we kind of began our research process, it was important for both Jamila and I to not kind of start with a theme, but rather to let that theme emerge from the conversations with artists along the way. So that first year and a half, Jamila and I had intense travels, um, you know, meeting with artists all over the world, getting recommendations from colleagues and colleagues of colleagues and artists and, you know, friends of those artists. And we had many trips planned, you know, all the way up until uh, we were going to kind of announce the and invite the final artist for the exhibition um and then of course you know the when the COVID-19 pandemic hit that was not possible anymore but we actually settled on the title and theme I would say like you know towards the end of 2019 so it was prior to the pandemic that we had already developed this title and theme for the show um and it's it's interesting because I feel that prior to you know when the pandemic kind of cataclysmically altered our world we uh, many of the artists that we were visiting were already addressing this kind of need in this moment uh of profound change um you know this idea that structures that we once thought to be stable were being revealed to be precarious or you know on the edge of collapse which we talk a lot about um in our text for the for the exhibition um and then when i uh, did a research trip to brazil back in it was August 2019, and Gabriela Mareb, uh, was, who was one of the artists in the exhibition, uh, was talking to me about a, a work of hers uh, and a proverb that informed this work. And uh, I, Jamil and I had never heard of this proverb before, uh, and it's very popular in Brazil. Um, the proverb is, uh, soft water on hard stone hits until it bores a hole. And then we came up with the title of soft water, hard stone uh, from that. Um, and yeah, she she translated the proverb and kind of spoke to us a bit about the uh, meanings of it. Um, you know, it's it said to have two meanings. One, which is about this idea of perseverance and resistance, um, this impact that a small gesture can have in time 
time. And the other one, which is about, you know, impermanence and inevitable change, uh, you know, something we've all had a kind of deep lesson in the past year. So Jamila and I kind of settled on, on this theme. And then, of course, it became like all the more profound uh, in the time coming in ways that we could have really not predicted. And, you know, the, the second kind of half of our research was all done on Zoom. <laughs> but it was actually quite efficient because, you know, having already kind of developed this theme and we, uh, you know, we're meeting with so many more artists in places throughout the world, you know, on a daily basis to arrive at the uh, last artist that we invited for the show. Jamila, did that create any difficulties in terms of picturing how the show would look? Because, of course, if you're visiting the studios, you can conceive of the kind of practical realities of the work in a way that perhaps you can't over Zoom. But did you find that in any way problematic or did it actually go quite smoothly or that side of it? I have to say things went quite smoothly. Um, Margaret and I are both quite lucky to be able to have nearly two years of research and being able to travel and meet with artists in person. There are also a number of artists that we were perhaps familiar with their practices already who we were considering for the show. So that took a lot of the guesswork out. I would say of the 40 artists that are in the exhibition, I think there are about 10 to 12, I could be wrong, that were artists that we met solely in that last year of research beginning in um, March 2020. Uh, shortly after our final research trip, uh, we were in Spain and North Africa, like literally a week and a half before everything shut down. I got home to LA that Sunday and then everything was closed as of that Friday. So as Margot mentioned, you know, there would be instances where we would fly somewhere, you know, from LA, it's an extra six hours to get anywhere. And for instance, when we went to India, which was one of our earlier research trips, you know, 23 hour flight, we would get there and we would be meeting with artists around laptops because, you know, not everyone has a studio or we would meet at, you know, a space where we would meet like a round robin of 10 artists who would come and present their work to us. So it seemed pretty fluid being able to, to transition into this digital only. I mean, of course, the screen is not an ideal way of seeing work unless it's work intended for a screen. So, you know, there were some challenges there, but, you know, a studio visit is really a conversation with an artist and getting to know a little bit about their work and their interests. And, you know, even in in that way, a lot of the ideas that artists were puzzling over or thinking through that were consistent with the themes that we were thinking about emerged from those conversations. I was struck by something that you said in, in the essay about, about this notion of emerging artists, because of course, the new museum triennial began with the bang in terms of the age thing because it was called younger than Jesus, you know. And, and so, of course, that was a very sort of um, direct way of addressing this idea of a sort of a generational kind of show. And in fact, it did have a sort of subtitle of the generational, didn't it, at that time as well? Yes. But what you're saying, and I think this is very interesting, is that the idea of emerging is not a fixed category. Would you expand on that a bit? So Margaret and I are both older than Jesus. <laughs> so it was important <laughs> for us in approaching this exhibition to not use a superficial category such as age as a determining factor for how emerging is defined or how you define, you know, an artist who is young, you know, young in their career, as we have seen over the last, I'd say, 15 years, a lot of senior artists are getting their first museum shows or they're emerging in one way or another. So 
you know, it's become more of a superficial category, but we wanted to think about the global context and what it means to decenter the U.S. as like the determining factor of whether or not something is emerging and have it be an opportunity for artists that are prominent, you know, in their local art community or in Europe or in a different context to have an opportunity to show in the States. So when the triennial was initiated as, you know, the Younger Than Jesus, the, the new museum generational, the title, of course, changed later. But, you know, it's hard to determine what a generation is because there's so many determining factors of like age, experience, career trajectory. So someone who was born in 1975 can be at the same place as someone that was born in 1993. And those are kind of the the two benchmarks in our show, Krista Clark being one of the older artists in the show and Bronwyn Katz being the youngest artist in the show. But, you know, as the art world has continued to globalize and expand, you know, we have to also expand our thinking about these categories, you know, be it age, discipline, you know, and the like, and be expansive about that thinking. And it allowed us, you know, a lot of freedom in terms of the types of artists we were able to bring into this exhibition. Margot, the whole discipline, the idea of the, the means with which the, the materials with which these artists work, they're crucial to this to this theme of the show, as well as the kind of subject matter that it conjures, right? Definitely, yeah. There's a real felt materiality uh, to this exhibition, um, you know, both in a formal sense as well as a conceptual one. I mean, there's almost this radical experimentation that takes place, and in in many ways it can almost be a political act, you know, in using materials that can transform over time, you know, destabilize this idea of a static art object. And yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many artists working with non-traditional materials, overlooked materials, craft-based materials, materials that, um, you know, one doesn't necessarily consider in an art context. Maybe they transcend, uh, you know, these simplistic categories that we continuously apply to art making. You know, there's a work on the museum facade, for example, by Samara Scott, that's most certainly a painting, but contains no painting materials. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that is something that Jamila and I were really thinking about, you know, with each and every artist in the exhibition, really how they were expanding these these categories and, you know, engaging with uh, materials in ways that seemed really like something we, we hadn't seen before or that seemed really, um, you know, interesting and, and poignant. That was one of the first concerns that I think emerged in the exhibition was noticing this um, inventiveness with materials and artists that were visiting, you know, historical forms or ways of producing work, but, you know, using some unorthodox material or approach to it, emerging, you know, painting with sculpture, photography and sculpture, all of these different ways that these artists are kind of mixing up and, you know, challenging these discrete categories of art making um, that have proceeded over history. So there's this real futurity in the work because there's this constant reinvention, but also thinking about how unstable a lot of the objects in the show are. So they'll continue to unfold and change. I wondered if, you know, in these countless conversations you've had with artists, were there sort of anchor artists that they were looking at, you know, sort of historic figures or, or contemporaries, perhaps more more senior contemporaries that kept coming up? Were there any artists that seem in a way a kind of emblem of the kind of concerns that many of these artists might have? Margot? Uh, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, yes, there's certainly this futurity, but there's also this looking, I think, at like some, you know, deep pasts. <laughs> I, I would say that that would be more um, 
prevalent than any specific artist, you know, who could be considered in a contemporary arts context. Um, but I do think that, you know, there's certain movements that certainly resonate in the exhibition, you know, the Art to Pavra movement, for example, or Monoha, um, you know, and, uh, you know, even uh, like I think of the, you know, Studio Z Collective and like Marin Hassinger and, uh, you know, Sengit and Gundi. And there's like, there's so many artists that I feel like resonate with this work, but not necessarily that there is a specific artist or movement. I mean, these are things that are happening across the globe in many different contexts in different ways. But I would say that, yeah, there was this like continual, uh, you know, interest in ways of art making that, yeah, were almost ancient <laughs> or, you know, kind of looking back and forward simultaneously. That was really interesting and kind of picking up, uh, you know, uh, the ways that this kind of art making existed, you know, before these structures were here and will continue after they're gone in many ways, you know. Yeah, I would also say, you know, a lot of these artists are looking outside of visual art categories and disciplines, you know, a lot of literature authors that would come up. I mean, Octavia Butler, I think we heard about a lot, um, especially with the artists that are really concerned about, you know, climate change and, you know, kind of speculative histories and speculative futures, uh, music, film, you know. I think that lends itself quite well to the interdisciplinary nature of a lot of the works in the show. You know, the painters aren't just looking at painters. The sculptors aren't just looking at sculptors. You know, they're looking at everything and anything, which I think enriches the, the work that they're making. I mean, at the start of your essay, Margot, you begin with quite a grim scene, which is the dark skies over over uh, Sao Paulo as you're flying in. And of course, this was caused by the burning of the rainforest. Obviously, the climate change factor is so present right now. Did you find that that was present in many of the minds of the artists in the discussion? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's this real sensitivity, I think, in many of the artworks in the exhibition in terms of, you know, thinking about the natural world, kind of also like our inseparable relationship to it. Um, and I that was something that, you know, I, I think I was thinking a lot about when describing that scene of flying into Sao Paulo and noticing this black sky and not questioning it until I knew that it was from th these like, you know, acres and acres of trees burning. I mean, and the way that you feel that viscerally, like, I think it's, you know, this idea that we're not necessarily separate from it, but that, you know, it affects us in so many countless ways that, you know, maybe like as humans, we feel that we can't picture, but it's actually, you know, so integral. Um, and I do think, yeah, that there's many artists in the exhibition that are addressing those ideas of, you know, kind of looking, looking toward nature. I mean, even with the proverb, it's very much about, you know, looking at nature and seeing how, how, how it moves, um, you know, almost kind of celebrating those states of change, but also, yeah, that resilient aspect of it too. I'll bring up an example of an artist. I mean, S Cynthia Deneau made these paintings, you know, uh, called As I Lay Dying, which are of these trees that are called witness trees that are, um, at Civil War battleground sites. Um, so they're trees that have witnessed, you know, the traumas and the horrors of this past in the United States, but, you know, are also, you know, hundreds of years old and are, you know, quite resilient and beautiful. And um, 
but you know, within that beauty also contain those those histories. And I think that, yeah, that's an example of one of the artists that's engaging with these themes, but you know, there are many more. I mean, Amelie Smith's film Clay Theory, for example, is a 3D film, uh, which is looking actually at the kind of similarities between humans and clay, this idea that humans are gonna emerge from the ocean, um, and you know, these terracotta figures uh, in Cyprus, which are kind of once thought to be alive, and even the DNA of clay is, many similarities to the human form. And I think climate change in particular, I mean, is like a, like the one thing that feels so uncertain in this world. And it's a thing that we're all very aware of it. I mean, there's some that would deny it, but you know, the artists that are in this exhibition are deeply engaged in the ideas of, you know, how the world is changing, what that means for our future and for the future of people um, after us. And, you know, it points to a larger question of like, what does it mean to be an artist making work in uncertain times? So climate change is one factor of that. The pandemic, of course, shifted that conversation as well. And also the geopolitical, social political um, reality that we all live in. So all of these uncertainties kind of collapsing into one, coexisting with each other. You know, these are the contexts in which artists are making work. So there's these different level of engagements and climate change is certainly one of those uh, touch points. Yeah, indeed. And, and I, I wanted to pick up on the, on the fact that lots of the work obviously is made in 2020, 2021. So I'm interested in, even though, the, as you say, you'd kind of come up with a concept, you'd invited quite a lot of the artists pre-COVID and pre-George Floyd's murder. I wondered about how much the work in the works themselves have shifted in the period since and, and to what extent the artists are grappling very directly with the events since March 2020. Sure. I think the thing that is, I think, a constant throughout the exhibition is this unwillingness to directly represent something. Um you know, I think the work of Amy Lee and Enzo Camacho might be one example of a work that was made after the pandemic, but like has materials that were that they collected in their homes, like food containers, bags, things like that, you know, during the quarantine when everyone was just like, you know, captive in their homes and the materials that they used to make the work that's on view uh, was intended for the for manifesta, but we're representing it here. That work was made explicitly with materials that were the result of, you know, the daily life during quarantine. You know, I would say most of the works are not directly about this moment. I mean, if you think about the work of Jay Fan, who's an artist in the show that's been dealing with, um, you know, the body and its processes and um, certain materials like spores, fungus, urine, kind of these these things, these waste materials and these um, natural materials. That work, I think, in some way, some abstract way, uh, is dealing with systems, natural systems, systems that we would rather not see or be engaged with. And I think, you know, thinking about the pandemic very closely, that's something, I think, a work that could be extended to think about um, that moment. But I would say... A lot of these works, I think, are not directly engaged with it, but it looms large, I think, throughout the show. Isn't that right, Margot, that, that effectively what artists are doing is dealing with the things around them. They're responding to a whole range of systems, as you say, and processes and different languages and everything else. And effectively, the audience is bringing all of what's happened in the last 18 months with them to that work inevitably, right? Oh, certainly. I mean, you know, these are, it's interesting, like, you know, as Jamila was talking, I was thinking about this. Yeah, all, a majority of these works are made for the show. Um, and, you know, perhaps they're addressing an experience of the past year and a half 
in them, but it's not kind of like directly, you know, referencing or representing something. It's, you know, also kind of speaking toward, um, you know, the kind of reckonings that kind of took place last summer and the, you know, kind of social and political context that we're within. You know, many of them are addressing, a, you know, the effects of this time as well, you know, and not necessarily <laughs> very specifically toward it. But one work that I'm thinking about is, you know, Amber Wellman created this giant painting, um, which is in, in the exhibition. It's, uh, I think, 30 feet long. I think it's the largest painting that we've ever had in the museum, in fact. But it's like this, you know, panoramic scene, you know, reminiscent of some kind of large-scale history painting um, of this kind of like post-apocalyptic beach. And then there's all these scenes of like, you know, love and there are these kind of like small flowers growing and, you know, it, it, it feels like <laughs> almost the end of the world, but also the beginning of something, whether that is specifically, you know, addressing the events that have happened or what's to come, or it's just like a moment in time that's like, you know, coming through this work. I think, yeah, that's certainly uh, the case with, I think, many of the works and we'll kind of see, you know, how they become contextualized <laughs> without yeah. necessarily knowing it now. And I'll add one more thing, something that I've been thinking a lot about now that the show is up, you know, you can be deep in something for so many years and then more reveals itself as that's the, the, the show progresses. But there is this sense of this profound sense of absence, I think, in a lot of the works. And um, like I'm thinking about Janine Frey-Najutli, their beads that are scattered throughout the museum, you know, Kate Cooper's work where, you know, the image is constantly flashing and it's a, you know, it's a body, but you don't see it. And it's like this kind of far off thing. The results of the, the, the pandemic, you know, the absence, the distances that we felt, the isolation, I think that does creep in a lot with this refusal almost to articulate a body, to show a body within different works within the exhibition. I mean, Ambera's painting also, I mean, they're, the, the, the shapes are, the, the bodies are fluid and flowing into the, each other, not, they're not distinct they kind of refuse a gaze but there's also like these moments that are like very clearly defined but I think that's also a thread that goes throughout the show like bodies being represented in one way but not necessarily in a representational way totally and this idea that they are like constantly moving they can't be captured or contained they're like kind of celebrating that idea of like you know refusing a, a, a kind of neat visibility that's really interesting. I wanted to talk a bit about um, about technology. And one of the interesting things is, it seems to me, looking through the checklist and from everything you've said, is there's such a broad range of materials, as you say, Lots of them are kind of almost ancient in 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 their sort of in their use. So you, things like ceramics and and as you say and and, and painting etc cetera, etc. Cetera. One of the interesting things is of course there's this massive te conversation going on about technology, which it seems to me is going on in a totally different place. And it seems to be like hedge fund people about NFTs, right? So it's kind of this crazy conversation, which is all about the money, but it's what lots of the auction houses are focusing on and all that kind of thing. Do you feel like there's a whole you know kind of realm of the art world that's disappeared off? in some direction and and there's another part of the art world that, that's having a completely different conversation or do you think could nfts potentially have been included in your show if it was the right kind of language and the right kind of subject matter well nfts kind of developed after we had already invited everyone to the show like they became a part of the public discourse well after the fact so the the quick answer to that is no however Previous triennials have had a lot of uh, 
technology, new media um, represented, you know, Lauren Cornell and Ryan Tricartan's exhibition, uh, Gary Carey and Mariari and um, Alex Gartenfeld's, the, 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 la the previous, the most recent triennial. You know, there are some artists that I think are definitely engaged in uh, technologies, but, you know, a lot of the show, we, we're thinking about technology in kind of an older, more archaic way. So like, you know, the manual making of something. So making a painting, making a ceramic, passing material through one's hand as opposed to, you know, feeding it through a computer. I think Kate Cooper's work is maybe like the most you know, technologically complex work in the show, um, but there's there's others as well. But but it's interesting because, you know, ceramics is a kind of technology. <laughs> I mean, and, yeah, and also as, <laughs> as somebody who just created this Lynn Hirschman-Leeson show where she was like working with media, you know, since like the 60s, um, you know, NFT, it's, it's a medium. And, 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 you know, it, it, these things that, yes, they become crazes and they become, you know, something that, you know, all the collectors are, are buying or, you know, w w whatever the case may be, but it's longer than, than, than just that, right? I'm, I mean, this is a, yeah, yeah, these, you know, these are technological building blocks and, and they, they are uh, media just, um, you know, like what we kind of consider technology today. Last question. I wanted to pick up on something which is in Jamila's essay right at the end. In a way, there's a hint at, and it perhaps relates to what you were saying, Margot, about the painting a bit earlier on. There, there's a hint of hope at the end of your essay, I think, Jamila, about the future, even if it is incremental that there is that progress can be made. Jamila, do you want to say something about that? You know, when you're reflecting on such a cataclysmic wild time as we've lived through in the last two years, it is hard to kind of see on the other side of that. But I think if there's anything that can be said, artists are the guide often uh, to get to the other side of um, our realities, our shared and, and different realities. So I think with my essay in particular, kind of tying everything together, the historical, you know, the instances of exhibitions unfolding at, you know, challenging times and the commonality there are the artists in the show. So I think they communicate very well what is possible, what might be, you know, the next step and uh, what our futures can be like, um, even when our present seems just completely chaotic, uh, which it has been <laughs> in many, many different ways. But yeah, artists are always on the, um, the precipice and always ahead of the curve with things so we follow their lead as curators and i think that's definitely uh evidenced in the show no definitely i feel like this kind of need to reassess our own relations to these structures that we unthinkingly follow is really more urgent than ever there's this prescience to their work for sure but you know the, the artists are kind of the first to pick up on these subtle tremors before they become earthquakes in a way um you know like jamila said there are guides you know and i think that yeah we were you know certainly uh you know so honored to have this opportunity to kind of pay this close attention to them and you know provide them with this with this platform through the show Margot and Jamila, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Softwater Hardstone is at the New Museum in New York until the 23rd of January.
And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The exhibition Manet and Astruc, Friendship and Inspiration has just opened at the Kunsthalle Bremen in Germany and looks at the relationship between Edouard Manet and the critic and artist Zachary Astruc. While Manet's reputation as one of the greatest artists of the 19th century is secured, Astruc is now less well known. But in his time, he was a crucial figure in the radical milieu that gave birth to Impressionism and ushered in a revolution in the arts. Astruc's pictured alongside Manet and various key Impressionists in Henri Fontaine Latour's a studio at Les Batignolles, in which he's sitting for a portrait while Manet is at the easel. A centrepiece of the Kunsthalle Bremen show is Manet's portrait of Astruc from 1866, which is in the Kunsthalle Bremen's collection, and I spoke about the painting with Dorothee Hansen, a curator at the Kunsthalle. You can see an image of the painting on our website or the apps, click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Dorothea, can you tell me, before we talk about the painting itself, about Zachary Astruc? Because I think people will probably know that Manet was one of the great painters of, uh, in France in the 19th century. But who was Astruc? Astruc was a very interesting figure because he started as a journalist, an art critic. Then he wrote poems and um, short stories and dramas um, for theatre. But he also started to do drawings and watercolours. And in 1869 he had his salon debut and from that point he focused more and more on watercolor and sculpture and three years later he stopped writing critics because you can't criticize your own colleagues um, and he focused on his art and he uh, continued to write. Now one of the amazing things to me when I was reading the catalogue, which is wonderful, by the way, I love the catalogue, was, was that he wrote this poem that accompanied Manet's Olympia, which is, of course, one of the most famous paintings of the 19th century. So tell me about that. Yes, it's interesting because uh, he wrote a poem and just the first four lines, we think that they were attached to the painting in the Salon and um, they were printed in the Salon catalogue. And that means Manet appreciated his poem and he saw the relationship between the poem and his painting. And um, on the other hand, Astruc was supporting Manet's work. And if you imagine the situation when the, all the critics uh, were very bad about this picture and, and criticized it extremely, very hard, um, Astruc was also in the focus of the critics and they were together. And another astonishing thing about Astruc, of course, was that he wrote the first three pieces on Japonisme, which is, of course, this extraordinarily important trend within the 19th century, which, which led to so much of the influence on, on the Impressionist movement, for instance. Tell us about that. Astruc was very much interested in Japanese art, and uh, Japanese art was entering Europe since the late 1850s, but only very interested circles and connoisseurs um, had the opportunity to see it and to learn a little bit about it. And Astruc was one of the first, together with James McNeil Whistler or Henri Fantaine Latour or James Tissot, for example. And he was in this circle of early lovers and connoisseurs of Japanese art. And um, in 1867, there was the uh, Universal Exhibition, Exposition Universelle in, uh, in Paris, where Japan for the first time uh, presented his culture to the European public. And in this very year, Astruc 
published two long articles about Japanese art and Japanese culture in a newspaper in France. And that was the first time that somebody explained to a broad public uh, this, this Japanese art. And that's significant in terms of the picture, isn't it? Because in the portrait of Estruc, Manet has a book next to him, which is where the dedication and Manet's signature appears, which also has Japanese letters on it. Yes, and uh, this is a manga. It's a book with uh, uh, woodcuts, with uh, Japanese woodcuts. And it's uh, really important that Estruc set his dedication exactly on this place in the picture and with that he appreciates um, the connoisseurship of Astruc of course and it's the first time that Manet ever depicted a Japanese object in a painting. Two years later you have the big paravent and woodcut by Kuniyaki in the portrait of Zola and you find more and more uh, pieces of Japanese art in uh, Manet's work but he also adapted the style and uh, the aesthetics of Japanese art. That is even more important to me. Mm -hmm. In fact, the whole picture, this, this portrait of Astrid, teems with art historical references, doesn't it? There are so many art historical references. Yes, uh, absolutely. First of all, the composition refers to Titian, the Venus of Urbino. And the Venus of Urbino was at the same time the... Uh, the composition idea of the Olympia and Olympia was a common experience between Manet and Astruc. So this is in the portrait, but you also have uh, a still life with books and um, writing tools and a lemon, uh, which refers directly to uh, Dutch art of the 17th century. And uh, you have also a little hints to other interests of Manet and Astruc. For example, Astruc is wearing a red scarf on the hips, which refers to the dress of a torero, and even to the fight. It's interesting, the torero is fighting, and they were fighting for a new kind of art. And in the background, you see um, an instrument, a guitar or a cello, I don't know, but anyway, Astruc and Manet, the two of them, were very interested in music and both married a musician. Uh, and they joined for uh, soirees uh, playing music together. And in fact, Manet later painted Astruc playing a guitar, didn't he? Exactly. And in our exhibition, you can see both paintings in the same room. It's very nice. And, uh, well, guitar playing was emblematic for Spanish music. Um, in those days. And so our exhibition starts with the Spanish singer by Manet, which was his first success and uh, his first uh, contribution to the Paris Salon. And at the same time, it was the, the time beginning of the 1860s when Manet and Astruc met. And I think the portrait of Astruc playing the guitar of 1870 is a sort of a adaption of the Spanish singer who was a fake Spanish singer, a, a French model dressed in a more or less Spanish style and holding the guitar uh, on the wrong side. And uh, Astruc playing the guitar, this is playing Spanish music as a part of modern French society. That's really fascinating. And of course, there's the Spanish influence in terms of art as well, because Velázquez is, a, is an, an enormous figure in terms of this painting, isn't he? Yes, Velázquez is the most important figure from Manet's painting. But um, Goya is very important for him regarding uh, works on paper. 
etchings. But Astruc was um, even more open to Spanish art. And when he was in Spain for three months in 1864, he very much liked uh, Greco, for example. And he's really the first Frenchman who uh, rediscovered the art of El Greco and he recommended Manet to, to look at El Greco and he really liked it. You can also find references to El Greco in Manet's works, but um, Astruc is more open to other painters in Spain. And also there's this lovely detail that, of course, in the, in the sort of wake of the scandal of Olympia, Manet himself travels to Spain with a kind of itinerary from Astruc, right? Yes. Parts of their letters still today um, available. And in our catalogue, we, we printed the French and the German and the English translation with comments. Um, and here you have a very long letter um, from Astruc to Manet, um, giving him uh, tips how to travel, which places to see, and uh, also where he could have the best coffee or even the only drinkable coffee for a Frenchman in Spain. Um, so it was very practical, but on the other hand, um, very informative also to, to get access to private collections um, of Goya works or things like that. So let's talk about the, the formal qualities of the painting, because it is one of the things about it that I love is that the painting is astonishing. That lemon that you mentioned earlier on, it's so beautifully painted. It's a stunning bit of painting in itself, isn't it? Yes, I think so. We, we put a detail of it in, in the catalogue and um, it's difficult to describe. It's not describable. One has to see it. But the painting is interesting because it uh, shows a broad range of different ways of painting. For example, the sitter, the left hand of the sitter uh, is very sketchy. You can even see the bare canvas, the primed canvas uh, through it. And uh, the face, on the other hand, has got many details, is done with broad brush strokes, with modeling, volumes. And you see the soft uh, beard and the soft lips and the eyes in the shadow. It's, it's great. It's a big difference between the hand and the face. But at the same time, it's a big difference between the right side of the picture and the left side. On the right you have the portrait and the dark background and uh, volumes and uh, uh, spotlight. And on the left side you have a um, room filled with light and a very sketchy way of painting and just uh, it's very summary. He shows what he can do with his paintings. He has many possibilities, many ways of depicting something. Yeah, absolutely. And it is very much a painting of light and shade. The, the, the way that I first came across this picture, actually, was, was a description of it in Matisse's essay about black as a colour. Oh. And in it, he talked about the black of, of Astruc's dress as being luminous he said it's a luminous black and I think that's a really powerful you know Manet was so committed to extraordinary depictions of, of surface but also to these extraordinary contrasts of color and, and, and tone wasn't he yes and this black you can find it in other paintings as well in the Déjeuner sur l'Herbe for example and that makes it very difficult to do reproductions of the picture uh, it can be very dark so that you can't see anything. But if you stay in front of the picture, you can, um, you can see the cut of the jacket and um, the folds um, and uh, even the hair of the sitter. It's difficult to, um, to see in front of the dark background. But anyway, there are different levels of 
black and brownish tones. And um, one of the nice details in the catalogue also is that it was clear that Astrid was a very good looking man. Yes. And that he was, he was actually painted by lots of painters, wasn't he? Yeah, so that's correct. And they even uh, in uh, the contemporary people even mocked him because he was sitting for many painters. He was, um, for example, uh, Felix Braquemont, also an early Japanese, um, made a very nice um, etching of Astruc. Uh, James McNeil Whistler did an etching of Astruc and Henri Fantin Latour was a very close friend of Astruc and uh, Manet and he did two portraits of Astruc. One has been destroyed by the artist himself. It was a big group portrait of 1865. It was called The Toast and Astruc, Manet, Whistler etc. they were on, uh, could be seen on it. And um, it's just a speculation, but one could imagine that Astruc would have been also in Fantin Latour's painting uh, Hommage à Delacroix, the first group portrait. But when he did this picture, Astruc was in Spain for three months, so uh, he could not be present. But it could be because they were so close. So in terms of the exhibition that you're doing, is it, is it, obviously it's about a friendship, but is it also about rehabilitating Astrup, bringing, bringing him back into this circle? Because even though he was obviously very well connected and deeply involved in, in the way that that scene was chronicled and, um, and the critique of it, he's somewhat been forgotten, hasn't he? Yes, of course. And I think it's always interesting to discover something new. Um, Manet uh, is very well known and now we can see him in a relationship to a person which has been more or less forgotten and that puts a new interesting point on Manet but it's interesting to, do, to discover Astruc and we, we did research in private collections and in museums in the provinces in France to find artworks by Astruc which are, you can't find. There's no book on Astruc where you can find illustrations our catalogue is the only one now and um, it's, uh, it's interesting I think um, to discover Astruc and one always has to know when, when you look at the Atelier Aubatignol in 1870 in this picture uh, we always look at Manet, Monet, Renoir, Zola because we know their later careers which were fantastic and nobody knew so much about Astruc, so he was not interesting. But in this very moment, in 1870, their future was open. They were all of them striking and struggling for success. And one has to imagine that we uh, judge the picture from our uh, wisdom of today. Dorote, thank you for telling us about this amazing painting and it sounds like an amazing show too. Thank you. Manet and Astruc, Friendship and Inspiration is at the Kunsthalle Bremen until the 27th of February 2022. 
that's all for this episode. Do subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With. There are new episodes coming next month. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentle and Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Amy, Nadine, Gisela and Lita, Jamila and Margot and Dorothea. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.